Okay, I'm going to announce a text that's going to surprise you, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Those of us that have been with us on the journey know that our first preacher this morning preached out of Romans chapter 6. And um, I'm the one that uh, talked to him about uh, doing that topic, so I fully anticipated him to deal with Romans chapter 6. But for weeks I've been burdened to preach the Wednesday evening service on Romans chapter 6 as well. About halfway through the message I thought, I don't think I'm going to need to preach my message uh, but as I've prayed about it, considered it, I believe God wants me to preach it again. And the reason is, I've been looking at the audience, and some of you seem pretty slow, seem pretty dense, so I thought, I better just preach it again. I'm just, that was supposed to be funny. Okay, um, so I, uh, repetition, they say, aids learning, but anyway, we're going to just uh, re revisit the passage. And I don't know about you, you ever heard two preachers preach on the same passage? It doesn't sometimes, there's not sometimes a whole lot of overlap, but I do believe that God wants us to revisit the text. It certainly is a central text in the particular subject matter at hand, true identity. If you know much about the identification truths, you really can't deal with those without really doing a thorough dealing with Romans chapter 6. So we're going to go back there in just a moment, walk through that text of Scripture here in just a moment. But I do need to make something very clear. How many people are from the state of Michigan? Could I see your hands, please? Okay, all you Michigan people, yes, my tie is blue and maize. Okay, how many are from the state of Ohio? The state of Ohio? Okay, you can put your hands down. Actually, for you, my tie is blue and mustard. Okay, so, well, anyway, I, I guess uh, try to do that, try to appeal to both sides, but I'm not sure it's going to work. But, uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you've missed one of the greatest college football rivalries on planet Earth, but anyway... Uh, some of these uh, Ohio people, Michigan people, take that thing big time serious. So uh, it's kind of fun being a Wisconsin Badgers fan, so uh, uh, you can survive in both states. But anyway, uh, it is good to be here, and I know many of you, uh, of course, have been here for the distance, and uh, uh, it's going to be some exciting sessions tomorrow. I hope that you will make your plans to be here, and it's, uh, we have certainly prayed a lot and believe that God led each speaker, and as we talked with them and gave them different ideas and they gave us uh, some of the burdens on their heart. I believe God's led in all this. Every time we have a conference, I often look back and think, wow, humanly we try to orchestrate it, but there is no way it can be orchestrated like God orchestrates it. And He guides the preachers and puts it all together in a way that honestly is humanly impossible. And certainly grateful for that. And I know the Lord has got some wonderful things tomorrow uh, for us to learn. Three important sessions tomorrow. But Romans chapter 6, we'll get right, uh, cut right to it here this evening. Romans chapter 6, I guess I can title the message, God's Way of Escape. God's Way of Escape. Now, as we understand, when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification and dealing with sin, there have been errors over the years. Several years ago, there was a doctrine that was a very, very popular, and we, we call it now sinless perfectionism, and it had the idea of living above sin. The whole idea was this, that you could reach a point in your life, from that point to the day you died, you'd never sin again. When I was in Bible college, well, let me just say this, that doctrine has fallen on very hard times. And the reason is, it didn't work. Okay, so that's why it fell on hard times. When I was in Bible college, I remember being in the Bible conference and a speaker getting up, and he put it this way. Of course, they used to call that living above sin. He said, the only way to live above sin is to rent a room above a pool hall. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> For that, many of you, that's dated. But anyway, uh, for some of you older ones, you might get a little bit of the humor in that. But um, 
And what he was saying is obviously you can't, in this life we don't live above sin. So we realize there never reaches a point in our life. The Bible says the flesh lusts against the spirit. These are contrary one to the other. And all of us understand that battle from the day we were born again to now, there's a battle going on. And we understand that, a flesh-spirit battle. So that was one error. The other side of the error is what I'm going to call sinful imperfectionism. And that is epitomized by two words. You could even help me finish this phrase. Nobody's... Yeah, yeah. See, you live it, don't you? <laughs> In other words, the idea is, well, nobody's perfect. I mean, after all, flesh, spirit, you know, we're going to sin. Now, I want to just point out that the middle, the Bible way, in between those two ditches is this. Every time you and I are tempted, there's a way out. Any sin you or I have ever committed, can I say this carefully? We didn't have to commit. You know why? Because the Bible says there's a way of escape. And I want to ask you a simple question. You believe that? So I want us to deal on God's way of escape. Certainly Romans 6 is God's way of escape. And we heard a wonderful message this morning. If you were not here this morning, let me encourage you to get on the podcast and listen to it uh, because it was uh, articulate in helping us understand this passage. And he said things I've never thought of. Okay, so uh, uh, you got to hear them. It's going to be a help. But I uh, have uh, learned a few things from Romans chapter 6 that have helped me. I hope they'll help you. I'm going to give it to you the outline ahead of time. That's kind of dangerous. It's terrible English, but I, I'm going to just give it to you six words. So you should remember six words. The first point is no right. The second point is think right. And the last point is, do right. In that order. So we're going to look at those three points on Romans chapter 6, and we're just going to walk through the passage, and I hope tonight you'll see God's way of escape. You'll see that although we can never reach a point where we're never going to fight the battle of sin anymore, every time we are tempted, there is a way of escape. Now, the first thing the Bible tells us right here is the word no. Look at verse number 3. It says, no, ye not. Verse number 6, knowing this. Verse number 9, knowing that. You get the idea God wants you to know something? <laughs> have, you and I, have you ever made a decision that later on you think, that was a bad decision? Because I didn't, I didn't know all the factors. <laughs> Some of you have made investments. And later on you thought, you know what, I wouldn't have invested in that if I'd have known all the factors. All of us have made decisions that later on we thought, you know, I just didn't know all the facts and I made a bad decision. We've done that, haven't you? God is simply saying here in this passage of Scripture, there's something you need to know. Because I'm telling you, friends, sometimes if we're not thinking right about something, it affects things in a very, in a very bad fashion. It kind of reminds me, the, reminds me of the story, maybe you've heard it. One day a policeman, a highway patrolman was out and, and he zipped past a car and he thought, boy, that car's going slow. He turned around, came back, even though they weren't breaking the speed limit, he was a little concerned they were going so slow, so he pulled the car over, and, and he was a little, you know, didn't know how to explain it. He walked up, and there was full of older ladies. And uh, the uh, driver uh, uh, seemed a little uh, flustered, and, and she rolled the window down and said, Officer, may I help you? Uh, he said, uh, yeah, he said, um, I know you're not breaking the speed limit, but he said, you're really going way too slow. You're really a hazard to the traffic pattern. The driver looked up and said, oh, no, officer. I'm going exactly the speed limit, 29 miles an hour, she said proudly. He kind of chuckled to himself and said, ma'am, uh, I hate to tell you, that's not the speed limit. That's the route number. <laughs> well, she was a little embarrassed about that, and so she profusely apologized. And, and then while the officer was talking to the lady, he noticed that the back seat was full and the passenger seat was full of older ladies that looked like they were in shock. 
Looked like they'd seen a ghost. They weren't even responding. They were just, looked like they were just in trauma. So he looked at the, the driver and said, ma'am, I said, uh, I noticed these other occupants of the car. They look like there's some problem. He says, is there a problem? Is something I can help you with? As they're, uh, they say, look like they're stunned, like they're, they're in shock. She said, oh, no, don't worry about it. We just got off Route 119. Okay. <laughs> You know, it's important for you to know the right facts. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to like Interstate 95. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. If you're in California, Interstate 5 is going to be a real bummer. Okay, but the point is, so, you know, you've got to know the right facts. And, and this is in the passage of Scripture. God wants us to know the right facts. So let's, could we just review those for a moment? Look, if you would, please, at verse number 3. It says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now, I want to tell you, friends, if you're saved tonight, the moment you got saved, you may not have known this, the moment you got saved, God took you and he placed you, that's the word baptism, immersed, he placed you into Jesus Christ. And the moment that occurred, there became an inseparable union. You are in union with Jesus Christ and you will be for eternity. Amen. Many years ago, uh, J. Vernon McGee, the old radio preacher, was visiting the Bible lands for the first time. He uh, came to Calvary, and there's, uh, some of you know there's a graveyard on top of Mount Calvary, and he somehow found the gatekeeper there and paid him some money and asked if he could go on top of Calvary, and he got up to the top of Mount Calvary there, the place of the skull, Golgotha, and while he was up, he was deeply moved with emotion. The gatekeeper looked at him and said, you ever been here before? He says, yeah, I have been. He said, well, when were you here? 2,000 years ago. You know, J. Vernon McGee was right in a certain sense. See, if you're saved tonight, you may not realize this, but when you got saved, you were put into Jesus Christ, which means his history becomes yours. So that when he died, so did you, in a very real sense. The Bible says, don't you know this? That when you got saved, you were immersed in Jesus, which means you were immersed into his death. But if you continue reading, you see there's another ramification here at verse number four. Therefore, we are buried him with him by baptism, by this immersion into his, into his, uh, who Jesus is, into his death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in this death, we shall also be planted together in his resurrection. So the Bible is simply saying this, when you got saved, you were placed into Jesus, so that when he died, in a very real sense, you did too. And when he was resurrected, so did you. It's what we call the identification truths. In Christ, we're dead to, dead, uh, to sin, in a moment we'll see, and we're alive unto God. Now, um, as a result of this, there are some wonderful possibilities. Now, in the Greek language, there is a mood called the subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood is what they call the mood of possibility. Many times in English, when we use that mood, we use the word may or might. It's a possibility. I might do this. I may go here, that kind of thing. Or may I do this? It's the mood of possibility. That is found in these verses twice. And that particular mood is simply saying this. As a result of your union with Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, there are two glorious possibilities. The first one is found in verse number 4 at the very end. Look what it says. Therefore we are buried with him by ba that baptism, the submersion of death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, here it is. Even so we also should walk in newness of life. So every believer in this room, 
has the wonderful, glorious possibility of walking on this sin-cursed planet enabled, energized, animated by resurrection life. Capital R, capital L, if you understand what I mean. This is everybody's possibility. I don't care if you've been saved five minutes. It doesn't matter if you've been saved a month. It doesn't matter if you've been saved 50 years. All of us have this glorious possibility of walking in newness of life because He is life, and now we're in union with the life. Okay, but there's a second glorious possibility. That's found in verse number 6. It says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be, there it is, destroyed. Now, the word destroyed here is not destroyed in the sense of obliterate. It's destroyed in the, it's destroyed in the sense of it doesn't work. Now, let, let me give you an illustration. Let's imagine after the service you go out to the lobby and Brother Lorch, our security man, comes up to you and says, Hey, I hate to tell you this. Some neighborhood kids got in the parking lot and they destroyed your car. Now, you're probably at that moment would have a vision of some kid taking a stick of dynamite, throwing it down your tailpipe, and turning your car into spare parts. You get the idea? It's destroyed. But what if he simply came in with some wire cutters and cut your battery cables? He has destroyed the ability of your car to operate. That's what the word destroyed here means. It means destroy the ability to operate. Uh, it's, in other words, it's lost its power over us. So the Bible is saying as a result of dying in Jesus... The moment you died in Jesus, something happened. Sin lost its power over you. Can we say this? Sin lost its authority over you. Now, let me give you an illustration, if I could, that might help. Let's just imagine that you're in a job, and I'm telling you, your boss is hard to work for. He's critical. He never compliments you. I mean, I'm telling you, he tells you everything you've been wrong, doing wrong. I mean, just calls you up in the middle of the night, get in here. I mean, I need your help right now. I mean, just unbearable. Uh, some of you look like I'm talking about your boss. But anyway, and so uh, somewhere along the line, you say, I can't take this anymore. And so you start looking, find another job, and you walk in that day to your boss, and you say, two weeks, I'm out of here. And uh, two weeks later, you check out for the last time, walk out in the parking lot, and you're thinking, I'm done. He's not my boss anymore. So you go to your, your new job, you find another boss. Man, you love this boss. He's a wonderful boss. You're enjoying his uh, leadership, enjoying your job. And you almost forget about the old boss, but the old boss does not forget about you. He found so much satisfaction, so much fulfillment, so much pleasure in making your life miserable, and now you're not there. So one night, in the middle of the night, you get a phone call. About 3 in the morning, you pick up the phone. Hey, get in here on the double. This is your boss. I want you in here now. Now, I want to ask you a question. What are you going to do? Can you imagine getting up, getting dressed, and going into your old boss? You say, Preacher, why would I do that? He's not my boss anymore. That's exactly what God is asking all of us. Every time you and I sin, you know what God's saying? He's not your boss anymore. See, that's the idea. Could we say this, sin used to be, before you got saved, sin was your boss. Did you notice whenever sin told you to do something, you did it? Get frustrated with your spouse, you got frustrated with your spouse. Don't be honest, you weren't honest. See, sin kind of ran the show, he was your boss. But when you got saved, that boss lost his authority. He's not your boss anymore. Now, notice what the text says, that henceforth, 
You should not serve sin. In other words, since sin lost his authority, he has lost his power. You don't have to obey him anymore. You don't have to serve sin anymore. He's not your boss. That's the point. Now, let me use another more dramatic illustration to help us make sure we get this. Let's imagine that you were a slave. We talked about, uh, Pastor Flanders talked about that the session before. Let's just imagine our, in, in, uh, uh, in our day, you were a slave before the Civil War. And imagine that you had a very cruel boss, a very cruel master, beat you on a regular basis, very uh, just demanded uh, 14 hours a day and, and uh, cruel and, and uh, seven days a week. And pretty soon you despaired of that master-slave relationship. Now, there would be two ways out of that master-slave relationship. Number one, for the master to die or to sell you. That would be one way out. The other way out would be for this, for you, the slave, to die. Do you know when a slave died, the master lost his power over that slave? See, that's what the Bible's talking about when it says, He that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if you don't believe this, just go down to the local funeral home. Get permission, go back where they keep the corpses, bring yourself a little pistol or a little gun, pull it out, and start threatening corpses. Bud, if you don't sit up, I'm going to put you full of holes. Do you know what? I don't care what you threaten those corpses with, you will have absolutely no power over them. Because they're dead. Now, I know some of you right at this very moment are saying, Preacher, I'm so glad I came to this conference. I'm learning something that, you know, you, it doesn't matter how you threaten a corpse, he won't do anything. Unbelievable. My life has changed. Okay, but anyway, I understand. Kind of obvious, isn't it? The point is simply this, friends. When you and I got saved, sin, the old boss, let me just say this, the old boss didn't die. Do you know sin is still trying to boss you around? I think all of us know that. Yeah, well, he keeps trying to boss me around a lot. The point is, he's lost his authority over you. Why? Because in Jesus, you died. Amen. Have you ever noticed that dead people don't sin like they did before they are dead? <laughs> Have you ever noticed when the town drunk dies? Do they go down to the cemetery? Do they send the sanitation? Hey, old Joe died. Better go down there to the cemetery every Friday night, clean up the old whiskey bottles. Do you know the sanitation department does not go down to the graveyard and clean up old Joe's whiskey bottles? You know why? He's dead. He will never drink again. You see that? When the town gossip dies, um, the phone company doesn't try to sell her. I'm not sure why we use the female pronoun, but anyway. <laughs> the phone company doesn't try to sell her a phone plan. Why? She's dead. She's not going to gossip anymore. See, my point is simply this, that when you and I get saved, whether you realize it or not, you were put into Jesus, and you are now dead to sin, which means sin, the old boss, lost his authority over you. So whenever you and I sin, we are listening to a an old boss that's not our boss. Now, the Bible says you need to know that. Don't you know that? You need to know that. And this brings two glorious possibilities. Like I said, number one, you can live the Christian life enabled by the Holy Spirit, by resurrection life. Number two, the Bible says that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. You've got the wonderful now possibility of sin not reigning over you because it's, you're not your boss anymore. For he that is dead is freed from sin, verse number seven. Now that brings us then to the second point. Number one, you've got to know the right facts. You've got to know. In Jesus, I'm dead to sin. 
and Jesus, I'm alive unto God. Now, let me just simply say this. You are not dead to sin in and of yourself. You're dead to sin because you're in union with the one who is dead to sin. And you're not alive unto God in and of yourself. You're alive unto God because you're in union with the one who is alive unto God. Are you seeing it? It's all about being in union with his death and resurrection. Okay, now that brings us to the second point, and that is got to think right. Now look, if you would please, at verse number 11. It says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that little word three, through, for all you Greek scholars, is the little Greek preposition, epsilon nu. It's really talking about position, where we are in Christ. It's through Christ in the sense that we're in union with Him. Okay, now with this understanding here, uh, what's the word reckon mean? Now we heard a little bit about this this afternoon, or this morning I should say. But another time uh, the idea of reckon is the idea of account. Of course, think right, but account. I'm going to use the accounting analogy. Have you ever noticed that accounting has nothing to do with emotion? Accounting has nothing to do with emotion. So let's imagine that uh, you do your banking still at the bank. Now, I know you millennials have no idea what I'm talking about. You Gen Z, you mean you bank at the bank? I thought you did it with your smartphone. Some of us still like to bank at the bank. You say, why? They got free coffee. Why else wouldn't you want to go down to the bank? Okay, but anyway, and sometimes if it's Christmas time, they got cookies. Okay, but anyway. See, you millennials are missing out on life, okay? But um, so uh, but anyway, so you're going down to the bank and you're going to do a deposit. $500, let's imagine you get a $500 check. Well, you get put out that deposit slip. And again, I know some of you, I'm just, I'm really vibing with my baby boomer friends here. They're like, man, it's all retro. You can see they're coming alive on me on this deal. But anyway, you fill out that old deposit slip, man. You go down there, you walk up to the cashier, you put it in there, $500 check, $500 deposit slip. And she goes, ching, ching, whatever. And she hands you out something called a deposit slip. You open up your checkbook. I know this is old fashioned, but I still like to do this. But you open up the checkbook, you write deposit, write the date, and you write $500. Now that's called accounting. Now you could add a zero. You could put $5,000. You know what that's called? Wishful thinking. <laughs> and you're going to be in trouble. Now, let's imagine you're sitting there and you have your checkbook open. You got your deposit slip. It says $500. And you're going to think, oh, I just can't write $500. I'm depressed. The dog died. It's raining outside. I mean, the hot water heater went out. I mean, I, I just feel so terrible. Uh, my friends don't like me anymore. I just can't write $500. You'd find that to be strange, wouldn't it? It has nothing to do with how you feel. It has absolutely everything to do with what is. So you would write down, no matter if you're miserable, no matter if you're happy, no matter what, you would write down $500. That's accounting. That's what the word reckon means. So it's not talking about how we feel. It's talking about what is. So reckon is the idea here, friends, of reckoning the fact that, I believe this, in Jesus I'm dead to sin. Sin's not my boss anymore. In Jesus, I'm alive unto God, which means I have the possibility of Jesus enabling me, strengthening me with divine supernatural life to do what I know I could not do unless he enabled me. Wow. That's the idea of reckon. Now, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, come on, preacher. Yeah, that's what it says, but man, I don't know. I must be the exception. Because sometimes I just feel so overwhelmed. 
I just feel sometimes like I just can't help myself. I get so frustrated. I get so irritated. I just can't stand it. I just say things I know I shouldn't say. Or, you know, I preach, I know I should obey my parents and honor them. But sometimes they frustrate me, and I'm disrespectful, and I know I shouldn't do that. Or, you know, preacher, I just sometimes feel like I just can't help myself. I just got, I just got to think wrong thoughts, and I just got to lust. I, I just feel overwhelmed with it. You say, preacher, what about that? I'm talking to people in this room. Know what I'm talking about on a daily basis. You feel overwhelmed by some temptation. And you know in your head, I've read this in alive unto God, but it sure doesn't feel like it. Well, i got really good news for you. And it won't sound like good news, but it is. Satan is a master counterfeiter. He likes to spin around your perimeter lies. And he wants you to think that something is an overpowering temptation when it's not. <laughs> One of Satan's greatest deceptions is his ability to deceive. He spins in our experience what is really not true, but it feels so true. Now let me explain it this way, and maybe this will help you. How many in this room have at least once in your life been discouraged? Can I see your hands, please? Let's raise them. A few of you are not raising your hands. We'll be preaching on lying tomorrow. Okay, but anyway... <laughs> The point would be this. All of us have been discouraged. Now I want to ask you at your greatest moment discouraged, when God looked at your life, was he discouraged? So was God over here thinking, this guy's really messed it up. We're, I don't know what we're going to do. It's almost, isn't it almost blasphemous or sacrilegious to think it? God's not in heaven wringing his hands thinking, this case is out of hand. You know what God's in heaven doing? Okay, this over here, got this here, got over here, this. Okay, a couple weeks ago, got this thing moving. He's got it all worked out. Amen. You know why we're discouraged? I'm going to tell you why we're discouraged. Because you bought into a lie. You bought into a lie. The temptation that seems to overwhelm you. You just saw, I can't kick it. I mean, and, and in your own strength, you can't. But the point is... There's not a sin on planet earth. There's not a way out. Why? Because he said there's a way out. So when you and I are in the moments of being overwhelmed, we're in the minutes of a counterfeiter, a masquerader, a liar, a deceiver. Now here's how you cut through the deceit. You don't believe it. Say, no, in Jesus I'm dead to sin. In Jesus I'm alive in the God. That's what it says. You say, well, preacher, sometimes the experience is just so overwhelming. Well, maybe this illustration will help. I, I, I think it's been a few years since I've told it from here, but some of you may remember it. But it probably was 15 years ago now. It may have been more. I don't know. But a homeschool group here at the church was going down to the museum there in Milwaukee, and, and uh, uh, there was going to be some kind of uh, one of the IMAX, uh, like a documentary. I think it was uh, on Blue Angels. It was on flight. And, and we were going down there. I'd never been before. And, and so I took my two oldest daughters, who are now... Um, quite a bit older, so this was quite a few years ago, and, and we went down there, and I remember, uh, I, I've only been there that one time, at the Milwaukee, at, I, at least it was at that time, was like an eggshell, like a half of an eggshell. Now, since then, I've been to other IMAXs, and they're like a big screen, but this one like an eggshell, so it was immersive, if you know what I mean. It was very sensory, because everywhere you're looking is a screen. And uh, so it was on flight, and what they had done is they had taken one of those cameras, and they had put it on the bottom of a Blue Angels jet. So you literally felt like you were flying this guy. I mean, these guys are doing barrel rolls. They're doing this stuff. I mean, it was, it was sensory overload. 
It was so bad that when we finished, I remember as we were walking out, my daughters told me later, they were just little girls at the time, they said, Daddy, we saw two teenagers throwing up at the garbage can. <laughs> Do you know why those teenagers were throwing up? I'm going to tell you why. Because they believed a lie. They weren't spinning. So you say, preacher, what about you? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. It was very sensory. I'm sitting there holding on. I mean, we are spinning like this. We're going in all kinds of directions. And I, I know, like if I can say this, if I can, I don't know if this is fair, but I got a theory. I believe everybody is compartmentally insane. What I mean is, all of us have a certain compartment of our life where we're a little insane. And, and I don't normally talk to myself, but I did have a, um, I don't know how to explain it, a conversation between my stomach and my brain. <laughs> I remember my stomach saying, we are in trouble. <laughs> we're spinning. This doesn't feel right. But you know, my brain was right there. My brain said, my stomach. Be logical about this. We're seated completely still. This is just a, a, a mirage, an image. And my stomach said to my brain, I don't care what you say. We are in trouble. And the guy in front of you is going to be in big trouble if you don't do something. I do remember one time I was preaching and telling, I, when you were teenagers, you could do stuff you can't do with adults. And I was telling vomit stories, having a great time. And I'm telling you, I heard a commotion over here and some kid had thrown up into the kid in front of him, his hoodie, right into the hoodie. It was all in the hoodie. It was great. If I told my vomit stories, I could probably get it repeated in this room, but I'm not going to do it. You're not teenagers. You can't handle that kind of stuff. But anyway, so I'm sitting there, and I am telling you, my stomach's saying we're in trouble. And I remember my brain saying, okay, stomach, I'm going to prove to you we are not moving. I took my eyes off the screen. I looked right at the chairs next to me, and immediately my stomach said, hey, we're not moving. We're seated completely still. <laughs> and my brain said, yeah, I just want to prove it to you. And so my stomach said, I'm feeling better about this. And my brain said, well, that's good because I don't want to miss this. And uh, <laughs> phew, back up to that screen. And I'm telling you, this time the ground was spinning. I think the jet was heading toward the ground. And my stomach said, hate to tell you this, I'm in trouble again. <laughs> I took my eyes off the screen, back to the chairs. And don't miss this. When I took my eyes off the screen, the illusion, the lie, and put it on the chairs, you know what I was doing? I was reckoning. <laughs> I was saying, I refuse to believe the lie, the illusion. I am seated completely still. That's what is. Amen. So it's like this, friend. When you and I are in the moment of temptation, you know what you have to say is, I don't believe it. In Jesus, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive unto God. The truth is, this is not an intellectual exercise. You have to understand, reckoning doesn't make you dead to sin. Reckoning simply admits that you are in Jesus. The illustration I think that might help here, I got this from the Normal Christian Life, which I highly recommend, as Pastor Flanders mentioned that earlier. Dr. Flanders did uh, my watchman knee. He talked about the fact if you go into a beautiful garden, so imagine you're on a tour going into a beautiful botanical gardens, but you have your eyes closed. Do you know that the garden is still beautiful? 
In fact, you can go through a tour like that and the tour guide's talking about this and talking about this and you hear people are taking pictures and the people are ooing and eyeing. You're thinking to yourself, there's nothing here, man. This is overkill. But you got your eyes closed? You ever been around Christians who say, isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? And you're thinking, well, I'm glad I'm saved, but that's a little overkill. May I tell you, friendly, uh, friend, they're, they're right. You got your eyes closed. See, I want you to understand, reckoning doesn't mean, okay, if I reckon it'll happen. No, it means it is. So in other words, it's real. Don't miss this. But it's not realized. In order to realize it, what do you have to do? And the answer is pretty obvious. Open your eyes. That's reckoning. Opening your eyes is opening your spiritual eyes and saying, I'm believing what God says is. Why? Because he said it's true. Have you ever noticed if your eyes are closed for a while, the moment you open them, you don't immediately assimilate what's there? It's bright sometimes. You're trying to get your eyes adjusted. And I will tell you, reckoning, friends, is simply sometimes that way. You believe it because God said it. But I will tell you this, experience always catches up with reality. <laughs> so you got to reckon. You say, okay, preacher, I think I'm seeing it. you got to know the right facts. you got to think the right facts, believe the right facts, account them to be true. But last of all, there's one other action here. You've got to act on the right facts. You've got to do right. If you go to verse number 12, notice what it says here in verse 12. It says, let not sin, therefore. That word therefore, if you can take all the truth we just learned and shove it into therefore, and there's more than I've preached, that's the idea. Based on what we've just learned, God says, here's what I want you to do. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. That she should obey it. I believe that's the body, if I'm remembering correctly in the grammar there. Obey the body in the lust thereof. Now, the point then would be this. This is what they call in the Greek language the present tense with the negative. And what a present tense with the negative is basically saying, it's ordering, don't miss this, a cessation of action. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this. Stop it. Stop letting sin rule over you. Stop it. Sin's not your boss anymore. Can we put it this way? Hey, lust is not your boss anymore. Don't let lust rule you. He's not your boss. Listen, anger is not your ruler. He is not your ruler. He's lost his authority over you. Stop it. Don't listen to him. He's basically saying, friends, worry, unbelief, anxiety. They're not your bosses. You're, they, you, you, when you die, got saved, they, they lost their authority. They lost their power over you. Stop letting sin rule over you because he's not your boss anymore. Amen. See, that's what he's saying. I always feel on verse number 12, every time I preach it, I feel so insufficient because I don't think that what I just did was even close to what God's trying to tell us. He's getting up in our comfort zone and he's saying, listen, friend, stop it. Now, notice what he's saying. He's not just saying stop it. He's saying stop it based on the fact in me, you're dead to sin alive unto God. Reckon it to be true and stop believing the liar himself. Because Satan wants you to believe that he still has power over you. He wants you to believe that you have to sin, that you cannot help yourself. So many people get right with God fully expecting to go back and fail again. And that is unbelief, and that is not Romans 6. Now, I want to tell you the word reckon is in the present tense, which means this is not a once-for-all decision. This is an attitude of life. In other words, in Jesus, I'm dead to sin. In Jesus, I'm alive in the God. And I'm going to reckon it to be true. And based on that, 
I'm going to stop letting sin boss me around. Oh, okay, preacher, I think I'm seated. So how do you do that? How does it look like boots on the ground? Well, I'm glad you asked because verse number 13 tells us. Look what it says in verse number 13. It says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Okay, you say, preacher, what's that saying? Well, it's the same phenomena. It's the present tense with the negative. Now, the word yield is one of those great words in the Bible. And uh, in, in, in Romans 12, uh, 1, it's translated this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present. So, yielding is not this. It's not, okay, I'm in a battle. I surrender, go to the other side, and go to their POW camp. That's not the idea. The idea is, here you are fighting God. And you yield to God, you surrender to God, but instead of going to God's POW camp, you put on his uniform and you go to war for God. You switch sides. So it's not surrender in the sense of passivity. It's a surrender yield. Is, I mean, a surrender present, excuse me. Uh, so that's the idea here. So what God is saying is stop presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. In other words, stop letting sin use you. Now, the word members is an interesting word. I'm just going to help you out. You know what it means? Body parts. Do you know that it takes body parts to sin? Did you know that? Do you know disabled people sometimes are certain sins they cannot commit? Blind people can't look at things they shouldn't look at. Deaf people can't listen to things they shouldn't listen to. When people lack body parts, there are certain sins they can't commit anymore. It just is what it is. Every sin on planet earth, I don't care what sin it is, it takes a body part. You say, well, preacher, what about worry? Well, that takes a brain. Which means that blondes can't worry then. Okay, but anyway, I, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. I'm blonde, so I can make blonde jokes. Okay, I can do that. Blonde is not a hair color. It is a state of mind, if you have one. Okay, but anyway, okay. I love making blonde jokes because the blondes are saying, what did he say? Okay, but anyway. Just... That was a joke. Hopefully you're laughing. Okay, but anyway, otherwise I'm in trouble. Okay, but uh... so here's what God is saying, friends. He's saying, stop yielding your body parts to the old master, sin, and start yielding body parts to the new master, God, righteousness. Now, here's the way that God says you do it. You do it as those that are alive from the dead. That little phrase is often overlooked and it's absolutely key. Because if you're yielding your own human strength to God, you won't make it. You're yielding yourself because you're in union with the one that is alive from the dead. So you're yielding yourself as one who is in union with divine life. And that divine life can enable you. You can do all things through Christ which strengthen you. See, that's the point of the yielding. So the idea, friend, is stop yielding your body parts to the old master sin. Start yielding body parts to the new master God or righteousness. Now there's one other little truth here, a couple truths here that can help us uh, unpack this. Look at verse number 16. It says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey. We talked about this this morning with Brother Shaw. The word obey, I want to just point out something. The word obey is the idea, it literally, if you looked at the Greek word, here's what it means, to hear under. The emphasis of this kind of obedience 
is right here. Now, my dad taught us this truth. My dad taught us this. I'm only going to speak once. I will speak in a normal tone of voice. And if you don't obey within a few seconds, it's considered disobedience. In other words, remember, how many remember that com commercial uh, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen? Okay, these are all the old people. Thank you very much. <laughs> I will tell you, E.F. Hutton had nothing on my dad. When my dad spoke, we listened. You say, why? Because he taught us that when I am speaking, your mother is speaking, you need to tune in. In other words, in our house, this was never an excuse. Dad, I didn't hear you. Never an excuse. I'm going to be honest with you. My ears were tuned to my dad's voice. If my dad spoke, everything else stopped. I focused on my dad, I heard what he said, and I immediately obeyed. Now, lest you think, well, your dad must have been, I mean, he must have beat you, something fierce. No, 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 yeah, you don't get me wrong. He disciplined me, but I listened to him for several reasons. One, he taught me to do that by disciplining when I didn't. But number two, I loved him. And I wanted to hear him. When my dad spoke, I locked in. I remember when I was in my 30s, my dad just would so I'd say, Jim, could you get me a cup of coffee? Before the word E was out of his mouth, I was moving. Because I wanted to. I wanted to give him a cup of coffee. Now, here's my point. Every young person in this room, please understand me. Obedience is not start with your actions. It starts with your ears. And every teenager and child in this room, if your parents have to speak more than twice, that is not obedience. Obedience is when you tune in, listen, and then immediately obey. And every parent in this room should have, years ago when they were little, taught them to do that. But I will tell you, here as you say, why is that so important? Because if you teach them to listen to you, pretty good chance they'll listen to God. Obedience begins with the ears. So the whole idea here is, it's God, just show me what to do. Tell me what to do. I'm all ears. I want to I follow you. I want to do what you want me to do. Why? Because you love him. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. It shouldn't be hard to love God if we really understand how much he loves us. It shouldn't be hard at all. It's the natural response. As I mentioned, I knew my dad loved me. It was the natural response to love him and to do what, he want, do what he wanted me to do. Why? Because I loved him. I wanted to do it. That's the way it ought to be with God. It's your ears. So we've learned something here, but let's go continue on to verse number 19. It says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. Wow, that's quite a stunning statement. So here's what the Apostle Paul, I believe, is saying. I'm going to speak to the infirmity of your flesh because you're so infirmed. Your flesh is so dominant. I'm going to speak to you a very human illustration after the manner of, speak after the manner of men, your humanity, because of the infirmity of your flesh. You've got so much issues. I'm going to use a very difficult illustration. And I'll be honest with you, none of us would dare make this analogy if it was not divinely inspired. So here's how God says, here's how it works. Look what he says, verse number 19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. Wow. God is saying here, if you have ever sinned, and we all have, 
then you know how to yield the righteousness. He's saying, just like you yielded the uncleanness unto iniquity, the exact same way you did it, you move over here and now you yield the righteousness. You got a new boss. See? So if we can do this appropriately, let's think for a moment. Uncleanness is a troubling word. In the Old Testament, it could be leprosy, things like that, ceremonial uncleanness. But clearly, once you get past the Gospels into the epistles, it's not used to talk about leprosy. It's talking about moral uncleanness. So here's the picture. I'll use a, let's just imagine, here it is. Your uh, wife texts you and says, honey, on the way home, could you get some milk, bread, and eggs? I don't know you ladies, I got to ask this question. Why is it always milk, bread, and eggs? That's a real boring list. <laughs> so wanting to be a good husband, you come, you get the milk, you get the, uh, the bread, you get the eggs, and you get the half gallon of ice cream. And then, um, my wife said, I didn't ask for ice cream. Oh, I don't know. It was on sale, honey. It was on sale. I saved you money. I saved you money. Okay, there it is. So anyway, um, you get the groceries. You put them in the cart. You come up to the checkout lane. You're, of course, doing a, a nice errand for your wife. You're kind of excited about it, you know. And uh, you get in line. You went there for one purpose, to be a blessing to your wife. And you were honestly trying to just do so. And all of a sudden, you're not even just looking around. All of a sudden, boom, a magazine cover that is inappropriate catches your eye. You didn't come there to look at it. You weren't even looking for it. But just came across your lane of vision. At that moment, young person, or, or, or I preach teenagers a lot. I guess you can, all young, even 80 years old is young. But anyway, in that, at that moment, you're going to yield. You say, wait a second, preacher, I thought you were telling us you didn't have to yield. Oh, you're going to yield. It's just a matter of who you're going to yield to. Right. See, you're either going to yield to your old boss, lust, or you're going to yield to your new boss, purity. But somebody's going to be yielded to. Now, can we say appropriately, what happens at the moment you yield to your old boss, lust? Well, maybe you've trained yourself to look away, which I hope you have, but at that moment you're tempted and you look back. In order to do that, you have to have members, neck muscle. Then you take the members, your eyes, and you look at that which is inappropriate, and I'm trying to be careful here, and then you begin to, in your mind, uh, meditate, if we can use that in a negative sense, on something that's wrong. In order to do that, what you had to do was body parts had to submit themselves to your old boss. Now, let's imagine at that moment you say, no, wait a second. Lust isn't my boss anymore. In Jesus, I'm dead to sin. In Jesus, I'm alive unto God. Based on that, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to use those same body parts, but instead of yielding the old boss, I'm going to yield to the new boss. You say, well, preacher, how do you yield to purity? Well, number one, you take those same neck muscles and you look away. Maybe you look up at the ceiling. Thinking, wow, yeah, ceiling. Wow, there are cobwebs everywhere up there. Every man in this church should know what the ceiling of your grocery store looks like. Okay, but anyway, well, they need to paint that. That light's out. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I had one guy said, preacher, I couldn't tell you about the ceiling, but I will tell you the tile needs to be replaced. Okay, that'll work. That'll work. You take your neck muscles, you look away, but instead of taking that brain and meditating on that which is inappropriate, you take your brain and meditate on purity. You say, well, what's that? Proverbs 35, 30 verse 5, every word of God is pure. John 15, 3, now you clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. I encourage young people that struggle in this area, uh, young men, memorize Proverbs 5. Memorize the last half of Proverbs 6. Memorize Proverbs 7. Because I'm telling you, when you memorize and you start rattling them off, 
It'll give you the right picture. It'll give you the stench of death. It'll give you smell brimstone. You'll smell uh, hell. I mean, you'll understand this is the devil. This, the strange woman is a lie. Oh, I'm telling you, it's good stuff. It's just good stuff. Like this, you're going to get mugged. Would you rather have a little six-shooter or a machine gun? <laughs> give the devil a machine gun. <laughs> just unload the thing. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. But the point is that moment, what are you doing? You're meditating on purity. See, that's the point. Just like you used to yield to the old boss, now God says you need to yield to the new boss. And since you know, unfortunately all too well, how to yield to the old boss, that's just how you do it. But you yield to a different boss now. Well, let me give you another hypothetical illustration. Let's imagine, I, I know we're just imagining here, but let's just imagine, I'm sorry, I'm a male. I know these are male illustrations, but uh, you ladies, I'm sure, can make your own applications. But let's imagine your wife just knows your buttons, and she hits a couple of buttons, pulls your lever, and you're predictable. Just like Old Faithful, you are predictable. <laughs> the lava comes up, and the words come out, and brother, we are into a battle. Okay, so here it is. You come home from work, and whatever happens... The buttons get pushed, the lever gets pulled, and at that moment, you're thinking, oh, grievous words aren't my boss anymore. See, before, what you had to do is you had to take your tongue, your lips, and your mouth, and you had to frame grievous words which stir up anger. So you realize, you know what, grievous words aren't my boss anymore. I got a new boss. His name is a soft answer. And so... Uh, you take those same lips, those same muscles, that same tongue, and instead of framing grievous words, you frame a soft answer. That's okay, honey. We really didn't need that car anyway. Okay, but anyway, I, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Okay, whatever. Okay, but the point is, okay, but the, the issue is, that might be grievous words in some cases, okay, but anyway, you, you know, the sarcasm might get you in trouble. But, but the point is, you have a new master. You know what I have found? The moment you yield to your new master and start to obey, he graces you with something supernatural. I'm telling you, friends, Romans chapter 6 is your way of escape. And the next time you're in a situation where you feel overwhelmed, you feel like I can't help it, you feel like I just got a sin, remember, it's a lie. An absolute lie. I'm dead to sin in Jesus. I'm alive in the God in Jesus. I'm going to believe it. I reckon it to be true. And even though I don't feel it, though the circumference, the circumstances seem to be screaming the opposite, I'm going to believe it and take a step of obedience, obeying my new boss. God says that's the way out. Amen. This is who we are, friends, in Jesus Christ. And you can take just about any other of the identification truths and reckoning is the same truth. Reckon yourself seated in the heavenlies. Reckon yourself accepted in the beloved. Reckon yourself loved with an everlasting love. Reckon yourself and fill in the blank, whatever the Bible says. You're complete in Him. So today, one of our emphasis has clearly been, we don't think right. <laughs> I remember several years ago, we were, uh, Pastor Schultz came to me, and he was a youth pastor at the time, and he said to me, uh, Brother Van Gelder, and he said, We're gonna, I'm going to take the kids up to the Boundary Waters in the state of Minnesota. How many know what that is? Know what I'm talking about? Boundary Waters, state of Minnesota. Okay, we've got a few people who do know that. Um, 
It's total wilderness. They call them boundary waters because there's a series of lakes between the U.S. and Canada. So if you want to smuggle something into Canada, you get in those lakes and you canoe yourself into Canada. That's how you do it. Donald hasn't built the wall up there yet. But anyway, I'm just teasing. But, but um, so you literally can just, you know, if you know what you're doing, you can canoe into Canada. It's just boundary waters are called. And I remember uh, Brother Schultz said, would you be our speaker? And um, I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to go because I like to preach, but my dad's idea of camping was the Holiday Inn. Okay, so um, I didn't camp. Every time I've camped, the air mattress has a leak. You're sleeping on the ground by the morning. I mean, who wants to do that? There's no fun in that. Okay, I'm just not a camper. I, 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 you're going to do it? Give me an RV. You know? Okay, but anyway. So uh, I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And uh, sure enough, got up there. I think my air mattress leaked. It was just perfect. You know how it goes. And <laughs> the state bird of Minnesota was everywhere. I guess they call them the mosquito. I'm not sure what, but anyway, they were everywhere. What fun is that? I mean, you know, you're just trying to survive, survive up there. And some of you in the room were there. There were the girls on one side. Guys were on the other side of the lake. In the middle, they had the, it was where we met. That's where we ate. We had to canoe everywhere. That was kind of fun. But anyway, and I remember... Uh, Preparing, I think, for the Thursday night message, I got in the canoe with another young man who had been there and doing uh, some part of the reason he was there to spend some time in prayer. And I remember as we were canoeing over there, he said to me, uh, Brother Van Gelder, and he said, I really believe, I've been praying today and I believe God's going to do something tonight. I remember looking at him and saying, you know, I think you're right. I've been praying too. I think God's going to do something tonight. We'll go over to there, the island, and I remember preaching a message on Romans chapter 6. And I remember finishing that message, I... Uh, I remember giving the invitation, we're outside. I mean, there's, there's nothing, you know, churchy about the moment. I'm outside giving an invitation. And I remember several young people got on their knees. And I could tell with some of them, they were meeting with God. And I'm not going to point any fingers tonight. That was over 10 years ago. Some are in this room tonight. I'm not saying they lived it perfectly. But I am going to tell you this. For some of those lives, that truth began to change their life. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. It can change your life too. You can be 16 years old and get a hold of this. You can be 66 and get a hold of this. Could I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed?